The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, RAF Form 414, Volume 16. At the end of my last episode of Logbook Tales, I left you on a bit of a cliffhanger. Sorry about that. After nearly six months, I was finishing the main part of the RAF's weapons instructor's course on the Phantom, and at home, Jilly was nursing our firstborn, but the pressure of work wasn't quite done yet. What faced us was the culmination of all our efforts over the past months of flying in the form of a week of intense work, drawing together everything we had learned. We had to fly a series of missions against all comers, demonstrating our level of leadership, control, tactics, formation management, aggression and skill, etc. These sorties were complex and demanding, involving tactics we devised to allow us to fly without the use of radio from start to finish. We employed a variety of signals, hand signals when close together, lights and flares from air traffic control when required, aircraft signals like wing flashes and porpoising when further apart, but the success didn't depend just on the passing of orders. It depended on the ability of our tactics to be understood and followed by everyone in the formation and for them to be able to anticipate actions and act as individual units when required. The briefings were by necessity long, but the idea was to keep the concept simple. We walked as a unit, checked our aircraft and climbed in, starting on a hand signal. Once everyone was up and running, we taxied on the light from the tower and took off en masse with the green flare burning out behind us in the grass, staying low to remain below radar cover. We led our formations out to the combat area and set up on a time. When the bogies arrived, we attacked and killed in a flurry of wheeling fighters before heading off to the next engagement area. It was an intense week of flying. Our briefings had to be prepared early and the debriefs went on late, and sometimes we were flying two major missions a day. We saw a great variety of opponents from helicopters to Hercules, F-5s to F-15s, and everything in between, but eventually the last mission was flown. Weary with the efforts we'd put in, we quietly tidied up a few leftover trips that still needed to be done, like flying air-to-ground strafe gunnery training, a role that had been reintroduced to our air defence phantoms, and then the flying was over, but not the course. We had industry visits to enjoy, learning about what was in the production pipeline for all our weapons and military hardware manufacturers here and abroad. Then began the Grand Tour, starting with a visit to the Wall, that enormous edifice that the Soviet Union had built to separate East from West. Not to prevent our citizens from going to East Germany, but to keep their citizens from escaping their oppressive existence in the East. It was a startling thing to see. On their side, great concrete towers armed with searchlights and machine guns, layer upon layer, row upon row of walls and fences covered with razor wire. Open spaces affording no cover, the killing zones, littered with anti-personnel mines. 
but on our side a simple line of posts marking the position of the border. From there we moved back into Western Europe, examining every layer of defence that NATO had against possible Soviet airborne aggression, from the missile batteries to the airfields packed with fighters, West German, American and the Benelux countries, until we returned home for a final task. We had to prepare and give a presentation to senior officers on our suggestions for the RAF's next generation of fighter and how it should be armed. Let me assure you, it wasn't going to be the Tornado Air Defence variant. As I took our last slide off the overhead projector and the lights in the auditorium came up, I realised that for the first time in six months I could relax. When the presentations were over, not only did I have my coveted QY badge, but the Nicholson Trophy for the best on the course. On something of a high, I headed home for the weekend to enjoy a barbecue with a Harrier mate with a sizable proboscis. We were old friends, and both our wives had recently produced, so it was great that we could get together. In the garden, sorting out the grill, I was thankfully alone when it happened. I had laid out the charcoal and doused it in meths, but after the flames had settled down, I could see it wasn't a light. I picked up the gallon can and splashed some more on for a second attempt and learned an important life lesson. Meths has a very low flashpoint. The hot metal of the barbecue was enough to ignite it, and before I could work out what was happening... The flame ran up the stream of liquid and disappeared into the can, shortly followed by a whoomph, and the can exploded. The next few minutes were a blur of memories. I was only wearing shorts, so I quickly felt my skin start to burn and realised that not only was I covered in flames, but I was standing in the middle of a burning garden. I don't remember screaming, but Chilly tells me that it was an awful noise. Big Nose was out in a flash, and together we grabbed a floor rug from the washing line and wrapped me up to smother the fire, but the damage was done. Within minutes I was sitting in a cold bath, turning the water bright red. The duty doctor was soon on the scene injecting me with pethidine and packing me into an ambulance to head to the nearest accident and emergency department at Boston. By that time, I was really starting to feel the pain, which in some ways was good. I was to learn that full thickness burns don't hurt very much as the nerve endings will have been destroyed, whereas second-degree burns are bloody painful. It didn't take long for Boston to realise that I'd need a specialist burns unit, which meant a long ambulance journey across the country. By now I'd reached the limit of whatever they were injecting me with, and the thought of hours in an ambulance bouncing across the countryside filled me with dread. My boss had arrived and asked if he could do anything. I made a plea, and he spun on his heel, reaching for a telephone. Within minutes I was being wheeled out to a great, big, bright, yellow RAF search-and-rescue-seeking helicopter, the nicest helicopter I'd ever seen. 
Thirty minutes later, we had landed in a football field where the Saturday game had been halted by a dozen or so policemen and a landing zone cordoned off, and before I realised it, I was in the antiseptic, cool calm of the Burns unit. I won't go into all the gory detail of skin grafts, drug-induced hallucinations, drinking vast high-calorie shakes, growing skin takes a lot of energy, apparently, and all the hassle my poor wife had to go through with a newborn and a husband hours away in hospital. I was something of an oddity there, as most patients were old folks or young children. Have a think about that. And I healed quickly. After a few months, I got back home, and my proudest achievement was to push our new baby round the married patch in a pram, about all I could manage at the time. My fight to get back to fitness was boosted by some fabulous news. My posting had arrived. If I could get the doctors to sign me off, then I was going to get an exchange tour in Australia, flying the FA-18. Now the real battle began. I had a target and a deadline to achieve. I set myself alight in June, and the posting was in November. By September, I'd got myself back into the Phantom, first in the rear seat, and then in the front seat with an old friend, the boss of the QY course. I was still bandaged up and would wear compression bandages for a couple of years, but could move okay, and more importantly, there was no leaking under G. Three different dual checks, and I could captain the aircraft again with a brave nav in the back. I passed a phantom competency to instruct check ride, and then flew a couple of months for the OCU, teaching navs coming through on short courses. By complete coincidence, I flew with the very laid-back Andy Kirk, who was in my back seat teaching me on one of my very first operational training trips on 43 Squadron back in 78. Now a squadron leader, Andy was doing a refresher course before returning to the front line after a ground tour. Our 2v1 combat trip would be the last Phantom flight I would ever fly. I had 1,111 hours, but it was time to move on, or should I say, move halfway around the world. For a reason I couldn't fathom, the RAF couldn't afford a proper removals firm to help, so I had to scrounge packing cases from stores whilst Jilly went round the married patch begging for newspapers to wrap everything up in. Before long, we had a pile of huge boxes ready for a low loader to pick up. From there, it would go to the docks and into a container for the three-month journey to Australia. In the meantime, we had to live with whatever we could fit into a few suitcases. We were travelling light. With only a few days left, we scrubbed our mag quarter clean and then watched the family's officer wipe her finger around everything on the march out. We'd flogged the car and my beloved motorbike, so now it was trains and buses to find the transport base who would fly us out to Hong Kong. The RAS version of a hotel room left a little to be desired, so we didn't get much sleep, but the next day we were bundled onto a VC-10 for the first stage of our journey. A trooping flight in a military aircraft is a bit like Ryanair on steroids. 
As you board, a small cardboard box is thrust into your hands with rations for the 12-hour journey. Crisps, packet of one. Sandwich, salmon paste, one. Apple, Cox's Pippin, one. Chocolate, biscuit, penguin, one. Drinks box with attached straw, one. If you want entertainment, you better bring it yourself, particularly for your crawling baby, or everyone else was going to spend the whole flight glaring at you. And don't be the most senior officer on the flight, or you'll be lumbered with the role of dealing with any problems amongst the hundred or so other ranks and filling out the reams of paperwork required. Hong Kong was just as we imagined, hot and humid. We had a week or so spare, so had contacted several of our ex-Air Force mates who now lived there flying for Cathay Pacific Airways. This was in the days that Cathay pilots were the best paid in the world, with more perks than you could shake a stick at. They always flew first class, their joining bonus was more than enough for a new BMW sports car and a Breitling watch. They lived in fine hotels during training, had generous schooling, medical and housing allowances, plus a travel fund that they could use to holiday around the world. We revelled in the exotic aromas of the place, the noise, the bustle, the food... Our son, however, had decided that jet lag was best conquered by sleeping all day and staying awake all night. He also didn't appreciate the attention he got when out and about. The locals thought that a blonde baby was the most gorgeous thing possible and wanted to touch and hold him. I personally was happy for Jilly to give him away, but sadly, not for the first time, she didn't agree with me. Apart from seeing the sights, one of the first things I needed to do was visit Awai Lam and have him knock up my tropical uniforms. For those who might not remember, my tropical uniform allowance had gone to settle a bar bill years before on the island of Cyprus. Luckily, this fine tailor could not only knock up a set of uniforms overnight, it would be a fraction of the cost of Geeves and Hawks of Savile Row. Soon I was suitably suited, booted and bush-jacketed with shorts, long socks, shirts and a white mess kit, etc. After reacquainting ourselves with our many friends, it came time to move on to start a new job down under. This time the RAF couldn't shortchange us and we got real tickets with a real airline for the trip down to Sydney. Descending towards that bustling city, we got our first view of the Opera House and the Coat Hanger Bridge before transferring onto a puddle jumper for the 70-mile flight north up the coast to Williamtown. Landing, we were met by the outgoing exchange officer, who was there to give us a few words of wisdom and sell us his clanking AC unit and his crappy car before he headed back to the UK. My first impressions were great. The base was as smart as a new pin, with neatly laid out lawns, shiny paint and smart personnel looking comfortable in short sleeves. The summer was just starting and we moved from a cold and damp England into dazzling sunlight. I expected to see aircraft buzzing round the circuit, but the place was unsettlingly quiet. There really wasn't much going on. It took me a while to work it out, but if you ever want to invade Australia, do it over the Christmas period, because everybody goes home. 
It seemed that the entire Air Force had shut down and everyone who needed to take a long holiday or move base on a posting did it during this period of quiet. Jilly and I moved into our tiny married quarter and relaxed, getting used to our surroundings and waited for several weeks for something to happen. Come the new year, the base started filling up and everyone came back to work. Our pile of boxes from the UK eventually arrived and were dumped on the lawn and we looked forward to unpacking and getting everything sorted out. Then I got the bad news. I was in the mess making a few friends during a get-together. A lot of the personnel still opted to be paid cash in hand and on payday the mess usually had a party. I was pulled aside by a couple of the senior RAAF officers on the base and told, quite bluntly, that they needed the US Navy's permission to allow me to fly the Hornet, and it hadn't yet been granted. What's more, they didn't know if it would. I'm guessing no one got around to actually asking them if it would be okay until I arrived in country and it had taken the Americans by surprise. We had British exchange officers flying Canadian and American Hornets, but I would be the first in Australia and somebody needed to say yes. As soon as I could, I got on the phone to the British Embassy and spoke to the military attaché. He told me not to unpack yet, because if needs be, they would change my posting to a USAF F-15 training base in Florida and I should be prepared to move. In the meantime, I felt a bit like a pariah, but on the other hand, eagles or hornets? Eagles or hornets? Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that at airlinepilotguy.com. And if you're enjoying Plane Tales and would like to keep it going, then how about popping across to Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice and leaving us a lovely review. We'd be very grateful. Many thanks for listening.